Oh, shit. It's the coin toss. Two sides of a coin. One surprise topic off the rip. John, do you have a coin? Every time. Every time. I have the same time. coin every time, yes. Yes. All right. So, Tarek heads or tails? I'm going tails. You know it. All right. There it goes. And, uh, oh, it's definitely tails. Look at that. Two in a row. Two in a row. I didn't see it. That's because there's nothing in my uh. hand. <laughs> All right, T. So we got an over-under on a prop bet today. The game is tomorrow. Uh, Michael Gallup, over or under 49 and a half yards receiving? Which you taking, over or under? Uh, I'm going to take over on the Michael Gallup 49-yard receiving prop, and that's just because Michael Gallup is the downfield X receiver for the Cowboys, and... Dak's shown that he will push the ball downfield, and that's really only, you know, two or three catches. And uh, I think that the Cowboys are not going to be ahead in this game. So um, Dak is going to be throwing it downfield. Michael Gallup's going to catch a couple of those, and he's going to end up, you know, with at least 50 receiving yards. And Trey, you got to take the other side of this coin. That's all right. All right. So I, I do think it's close, uh, but I could see it play out tomorrow night where Gallup gets, you know, maybe one catch, maybe two catches, maybe gets a grand total of 40 yards or less uh, and, and hits the under here. And I mean, the main reason is because they do have enough other good weapons on this offense that they can funnel those targets to Amari uh, to CD Lamb or to either the running backs, and they don't have to go through Gallup. And the other thing is, is this is a good defense, and they don't really give up a lot of yards and a lot of points. So they could, you know, maybe shut down the downfield passing and make Dallas beat them underneath and kind of take Gallup out of the equation. So I think there's a reasonable case for the under here. Fair enough. And I know, John, I know you're taking the push at the 49 and a half. Right? No, no, I got I got a better prediction this week. And here's here's how it's gonna go down. One pass, 49 yards, first drive, and everyone's thinking, oh man, the over's gonna hit. But then they're at the 50 yard line. They're thinking, trick play. They throw the ball in the backfield to Michael Gallup. He goes back to pass it to Dak for a touchdown. But wait, he's getting charged by that good defense. He runs backwards for a safety. He ends up with negative one yards on the night. Ooh, That's my prediction. Brutal. You hate wow. to see it in fantasy. I would love to see it in fantasy. If Michael Gallup takes a sack, does that take away from his receiving yards total? Is that how is that how it works? That's how that's how passing yard calculations work. Especially yeah. so in John, Vegas. So John, what you're saying is you agree with me. Yeah, it's definitely gonna be the under. It's gonna be oh, so under, it's negative. So okay. so under. He's gonna pull a John Ross and end the the fantasy season with negative points. There it is. No, John, that's interesting. I don't think a lot of people would have picked the under. I think, you know, if it was my money, I probably would go the over here, but See, I mean, yeah, I, I see a case either way. I feel like I tend toward the over on everything. I feel like that is a that is a bad like that is a bad habit for my betting mm -hmm. is that I'm always tending toward the over. Well, it's way more fun. Yeah, rooting against football. God, yeah, that's my favorite rooting, thing too. Rooting <laughs> against. I just love that hard nosed defensive football. Well, apparently, you don't because you're always betting overs and rooting for the Cowboys. Oh. <laughs> Double zig. Dang. Sorry, Terry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what the fuck?
fuck is going on, everyone? Welcome into the Long Game Dynasty podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about dynasty, fantasy, football. I'm your host, Tarek Angry T. Bintria. With me, as always, Trey Cryan, John Alexander, and Mitch Yates. Trey, we missed you last week, man. How are you doing? Yeah, I missed you guys. I was uh, I was actually traveling last week. I was a, a groomsman in a wedding down in Austin, and uh, you know I, it was a crazy weekend. I didn't get to sneak in time with John, so one of my big regrets there. But uh, big shout out to uh, to Alan and Aaron. I know Alan uh, is actually a regular listener of the pod, and I really hope he's not listening this week while he's on his honeymoon in Hawaii. So uh, shout out to you, bud. Hey, we need those downloads, Trey. <laughs> yeah, not from Alan this week. <laughs> No, what I hope is that Alan and his new bride are listening to the podcast <laughs> together. On, on both yeah. of their phones. That's hardcore, man. It's good marriage therapy right there is listening to the Long Game Dynasty Fantasy Football Podcast. I mean, isn't the Long Game just a metaphor for marriage in general? I, <laughs> don't give away the ending of our podcast, Trey. Come on. That's episode 100. Hey, so, some of the same axioms apply as well. It's like, you know, if it's not working out, it's my, maybe time to sell off some assets and start rebuilding. Or if you're if this marriage is contending, <laughs> maybe bring in another buyer too <laughs> and see if you can go for the championship. God, for your sake, but I hope the wife's not listening to this episode either. I can guarantee you she's not after that comment. <laughs> Mitch, how are you doing, bro? Oh, even better, man. You know, got a new torn ligament. This time it's just in my hand, so now I can only give one of y'all the middle finger at, at a time. So used to be two, but, you know, feeling good. Like, it's, I'd rather it happen in my hand than my, than my foot. True enough, true enough. John, how you doing, man? Who is your college player of the week that you're highlighting hey, So last week I said, watch out for Zach Charbonnet. I can't, still can't say it. Uh, and you know what? He did it again against LSU. Had over 100 yards rushing. So keep your eye on him. Uh, this week, though, I've got my, I had my eye on, I think it was the Friday night game, uh, Ohio State versus uh, Minnesota. And Ohio State ended up winning, of course, because they, they win a lot of games. And uh, you're going to be hearing this one a lot. But I just want to make sure we mentioned it on the podcast here, and that would be Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. So I've actually got two guys this week. Uh, Chris Olave had four receptions for uh, hundred uh, for over hundred yards and two touchdowns. Garrett Wilson had five receptions for eighty yards and one touchdown. And this is uh, they both had outstanding games. Um, they both look great. And so I think the conversation going forward is going to be. Uh, who's the wide receiver one on this offense? Who's the wide receiver two? I think everyone basically got them in their top five for the 2022 class. And it's just going to be a matter of uh, how the season goes and where they get drafted. But uh, right now I've got Garrett Wilson as my wide receiver one for the next year's class and Chris Olave as my uh, wide receiver five. And, you know, anything could happen between now and then. Right now, Olave's got the upper hand, but we'll see how the season goes. It's going to be an interesting thing to watch. It's an outstanding offense they've got so going so far at Ohio State. Yeah, Garrett Wilson just uh, doing 2022 wide receiver one tings. And yeah, Chris Olave looks good too, man. I think Olave is kind of already that uh, sharp route runner. Um, you know, like we said a couple weeks ago, we kind of wish that he would have come out in this class uh, and gotten that early declare behind his name. But, you know, they all have their reasons. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out at Ohio State. All right, guys, let's get into this episode 22 of the Long Game podcast. Before we get into the main segment, let's just 
get a couple of uh, housekeeping out of the way in terms of news. Uh, the first news item I wanted to go over really quick is just the Baltimore backfield. We talked last week about J.K. Dobbins' injury and what that does for his value as well as Gus Edwards' value. I don't think we talked about Tyson Williams uh, last week, but we can mention him now. But the new news is that the Ravens have signed Le'Veon Bell to the practice squad. And according to Adam Schefter and Ian Rappaport, it's just a matter of time before he's activated um, to the active roster. So um, do any of y'all have some level of concern, whether for Gus Edwards or for Tyson Williams as the second back there? Oh, also, I mean, big news too, I guess, is that Justice Hill uh, tore his Achilles, which sucks for him. But how are we reacting to these moving parts in the Baltimore backfield? Well, Justice Hill moved on to a roster of ours and quickly moved off and should remain off all rosters, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, along with his new friend Le'Veon, though, man, I am not into this at all. If he looked washed last year, I can't really see that improving a whole lot this year. So it's a good it's a good running offense. So like there is some optimism there, but it's not for Le'Veon. Yeah. So the question for me, the question for me isn't about Le'Veon Bell's value. It's about Gus Edwards value. So I think this just shows you the fragility of some of these guys who kind of step into these roles where they weren't projected to be starters. And then the guy in front of them gets hurt. And then, you know, they're the lead guy. We get all excited. Their value jumps up. Uh, teams are always signing backups in depth because they're trying to win and they don't care about our fantasy team. So I think this is a situation to monitor for Gus Edwards. It's a little bit concerning if you're relying on him as a flex player or like a zero RB type contributor this year, but um, I'm not a ton of cause for concern uh, today until we sit on the field. To me, it's very similar to the Sony Michelle signing or the trading in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like I wasn't, I, I didn't care about that. I don't really care about this. Like they're clearly uh, behind the the lead guys in that backfield, but I agree. It's it's definitely a fragile situation. Like they're tough guys to bank on going past this year, but I don't think they're going to cut into a whole lot of time uh, with Gus Edwards or uh, with Daryl Henderson this year. Yeah, I think if you were also banking on this Tyson Williams uh, rookie coming in and you know potentially getting you know. 35, 40% of that running back share, this might uh, temper those expectations a little bit. But I mean, personally, just because of the upside, I'm probably, if I'm choosing between Le'Veon Bell and Tyson Williams on the waiver wire, I'm probably going to put in a bid for Tyson Williams still. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the second news item and final news item I want to tackle is this uh, Latavius Murray release from the New Orleans Saints. Um so it was kind of a surprising release. I mean, all throughout um, the last couple of weeks, we had heard rumblings that Tony Jones, who's an undrafted rookie out of Notre Dame, was climbing up the depth chart. Um, but I didn't necessarily expect that to end in Latavius Murray being released. But now that it has, I mean, ostensibly, Tony Jones steps into that running back to role, maybe that some of that early down work that Latavius Murray was getting. And we've seen in the past that that can be a very fantasy relevant role. So here's my question, because I've, I've had a couple of talks over the last couple of days since this release happened in various dynasty leagues. Are you trading a third round pick for Tony Jones at this point in time? And, you know, your run of the mill super flex dynasty league. 
I I would I have Kamara on one roster and that's that's my absolute maximum. And I think for like a sense of security, yeah, I think he's worth a third round pick. And in Superflex, third round picks are worth more than uh, one QB third round pick. So it's not sure. nothing, but I do think that um, the potential to step in if Kamara's out, like who else is behind him in that depth chart, you know? But at the same time, the Saints are kind of notorious for bringing out nobodies and turning them into somebody. So uh, is he worth the third round pick for the security? Yeah, but I don't feel great about it. But I've still tried. I wouldn't pay any more than that to get him on my roster. I think I'd pay a third, but not if I had Kamara on my roster. Simply, I'd pay a third for it. Because, like, Tarek, you just mentioned, Latavius is leaving a vacancy there. And as good as Kamara is, and he is excellent, he operates best without, like, you know, 40 touches a game, sure, right? Like, yeah. he's he, he works better when he has somebody in there to pound the rock every now and then and spell him. So he can also run out wide. So if we're thinking Tony Jones gets some touches get some design looks even if it's just a couple um i think that's worth a third round pick for me yeah and if i'm a tony jones manager uh i would definitely think about accepting a third round pick um third round picks aren't worth much other than as like greasers and other trades so i do like to compile third round picks because they can get the wheels moving in other trades um so I might, depending on the team, rather have a third round pick than Tony Jones. I mean, I think I sold Latavius Murray in a couple leagues earlier this offseason for a third round pick, and I don't think Tony Jones is really going to be anything. You know, I'm not going to bet that his value goes up. But um, so I think that's that's a good meeting point. You know, if you're the Camara manager or if you're a manager that likes to get other running backs handcuffs, you could pay a third. I'm also fine with you selling for a third if you'd like. Okay. Let's get into this main content. So what are we talking about today? A core principle of Dynasty should be be reactive, not reactionary. You don't want to be holding the bag because you didn't react to clear signals, but you also don't want to set that bag on fire and then burn your house down. So each of us are bringing in something that we are going to be reacting to in week one in the first half. And then the second half, we'll be talking about things that we expressly will not be reacting to. So we want to prime our listeners for when to be reactive and when not to be reactionary. Because striking that balance uh, kind of is what makes you a successful dynasty player in a lot of leagues. So for this first half, what are some things in week one that we will be reacting to? John, I'm going to start with you. So I've got a pretty specific case that I want to talk about. And what I'm going to specifically be looking out for is how like these tier one and tier two dynasty guys are doing post injuries. So I'm talking about kind of your upper echelon guys who are coming off, you know, a fairly significant injury or at least one that was uh, that kept them out of more than a couple of games last season. And I'm going to be asking myself during these first few weeks, um, are they still worthy of that tier one or two tier two status? Now, why would I ask that? Well, I, I use as a case study uh, Todd Gurley. So in 2018, Todd Gurley, he suffers a knee injury in week one. He plays through it basically the entire season, and then he just doesn't play in weeks 16 and 17. He ends up as running back three in PPR format. So we're thinking, yeah, that's a pretty good finish. Coming off a couple of uh, top three finishes the previous years as well. But come 2019, it looked like he was running in sand to me. Um, he just didn't look great. He was with the Rams that year. He still finishes PPR running back 14. 
And then last year, with a new team, he ends up as running back 29. So I wouldn't say his fall was precipitous, but it's pretty clear he's not worthy of that tier one status anymore. Um, And you could figure that out pretty quickly into the 2019 season. So generally speaking, what I'm talking about here is I'm trying to watch to see if any of these tier one or tier two guys have lost a step post-injury. Now, that's probably not going to be totally apparent week one, but it's something I'm going to be monitoring beginning in week one. So a few guys come to mind for me are CMC, uh, Saquon Barkley, Dak Prescott, and A.J. Brown. These are all guys that are coming off fairly significant uh, injuries that kept them out for a significant period of time. Now, I don't necessarily expect any of these guys to drop in dynasty value, but I just want to watch to make sure they're passing the eye test for the first few weeks of the season so that I don't get left holding the bag, like a, which is what happened to a lot of Todd Gurley, uh, a lot of folks who had tar- Todd Gurley on their rosters. What do y'all think about that? Well, what is what is A.J. Brown's significant injury? I mean, he's coming off of two knee surgeries in the offseason, so he didn't miss game time, but he had surgeries in both knees, and I think in the last couple of weeks, he's he's kind of tweaked one of the knees again, so... Um, yeah, just just wanted to clarify there. You know, I, I appreciate that clarification, but it's, it's definitely worth monitoring. Do I expect him to come back full strength? Yes, but what if he doesn't? What does that mean? So, John, I mean, I think what you're getting at here is this is the first time we've seen these guys play in you know, in the case of Saquon Barkley or CMC, like really fully healthy in more than a year, right? So, right uh, for AJ Brown, we saw him all last year, but now there's just big question marks. So, I. Typically, I would recommend in Dynasty when you've got somebody like Barkley or CMC who goes down, they're actually great trade targets because, you know, no matter what, their value is going to go up uh, from the moment that you trade for them and bring them on your team, assuming you're you know, paying a fair market value uh, that's adjusted for that injury. So I think what this kind of tells us is, are they back? Are they still the player that we think they are? Or are there still some lingering question marks and do we need to adjust accordingly? So. I guess, what are you looking for to tell you to go out and acquire one of these guys or to maybe think about selling? I think that's a tough question. Like for me, like I, I use the case of Todd Gurley. It just looked like he was slower. It looked like he wasn't the same guy. So it's hard mm-hmm. for me to quantify right now, but I'm just gonna be watching this first week to see if they look like they're the same guy. Um, and it's probably too early to tell after week one whether or not uh, I want to go and try to get these guys on my roster. But if it's a continuing thing, you know, maybe you can get them at a discount. Yeah, I, John, I, I love that. I think that's a great point. And one thing I do have to ask you is, like Christian McCaffrey here, if he returns to, quote, himself, like that that means he's returning to the number one, like, running back or player in fantasy football. So that's a pretty big expectation. What if he falls short? From that and then say like he he's, he's more like a running back 10 overall now is is his value still there for you or is that like trending in the wrong direction and you're like saying I'm out of this well that's kind of the same thing that happened to Gurley right so I that's a judgment call that's a choice you've got to be making it's uh and Gurley was younger than CMC currently is so uh I don't know. That's that. Those are big red flags for me when I start seeing that decline. That's the prototypical age cliff, right? Now, we, we don't think that happens to CMC because it's Superman, but it's probably going to happen eventually. So wh- what's the worst he could finish then for you to, for you to say he's himself? Well, I mean, wh- uh, let me let me intervene a little bit, because I think what John is saying 
is that there's a little bit of kind of a judgment call inherent into these things. So like, okay, maybe he could be in that RB8 to RB12 range and you're concerned a little bit, but if you're watching the games and you're seeing that he's still running like Christian McCaffrey, he still looks like he's making those cuts. He still looks like he's, you know, that quick and and, and has those same hands and all that, then you shouldn't be that worried. But the 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 sticking point with Todd Gurley and what John was saying is that in 2019, when Todd Gurley came back, it looked like he was running in sand, right? So this is a little bit more of a tape evaluation type point than it is a fantasy finish type point, if I'm understanding John right. Yeah, that you said it perfectly. Thank you. That, that said, though, uh, CMC better run all over that Jets defense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Mitch, let's go to you next. What is something that after watching week one, you will be reacting to? So, yeah, I'll be reacting to players that had a lot of offseason hype that may not meet these expectations on opening day. And so with fantasy football, it's a lot of like, what have you done for me lately? And none of these guys have done anything for us lately because it's been a long, long offseason. So put in a lot of work and we built these rosters and let's face it. Some of these guys are going to fall flat on their face week one. And that's mm-hmm. just, that's just kind of how it works. Right, John, that's you're the math teacher statistics. Yeah. Go statistics. That's what he teaches everybody. But how I'm reacting is important. First, we got to target our hypothetical guys. And, uh, after week one, we're going to slide in those DMS and trade inboxes. Uh, these moves are going to be premeditated. You should be thinking about what your potential offers are now. So you can be the first guy to the party holding that real fake wad of cash. And you know what? Even if they don't accept your offer week one, they're going to know you're interested. So I'm looking at JT and AJ Brown first. Those are two of those uh, players that last year, they really, really started to come onto the scene, really started to get that hype train rolling. And uh, their prices are pretty much at an all-time high in Dynasty. They're going like wide receiver one price tag, running back one price tag. And... There's a big difference in that and redraft. And redraft, they're both going like wide receiver seven, running back seven. So, so game one's pretty important for these guys. For example, say uh, we're we're looking at JT here. Hines goes out there, gets a few more touches than we were expecting, gets a bunch of catches like the coaches have been talking about, and JT puts up some pedestrian numbers. You know, that's that's going to be good enough for me to start entering this conversation because. I would like it if JT started a little slower because his price right now is unattainable. And so I'm looking for, you know, every little bit I can get to just get into this conversation. Same with AJ Brown, you know, he's with uh, Derrick Henry and uh, Julio Jones. It's very feasible for those two to put up a big stat line and AJ Brown to regress. And if people are going to start seeing AJ Brown regress first week, maybe they're going to back off and they're going to look for a certified stud like Diggs or Hopkins or something like that as they're going to start thinking A.J. Brown is maybe a late year this year to next year guy. So right now their values are two firsts and like what, like a top 25 player at their position. But maybe after week one, if they don't show up and people are starting to freak out about their rosters and want to start winning now, then we can start shaving off one of those firsts, maybe turn it into a second or the yeah. offers might get a little bit better. And so it's kind of a, it's, it's a process. And so Real quick, I'm just going to rattle off a couple other guys I got on my peripheries here. David Montgomery, as Tarek mentioned before, people aren't super high on him right now, and he's a weird trade asset. A slow start would definitely be a good thing if I'm trying to buy because, you know, that that's that's the dip I'm looking for. But uh, 
one of the Buccaneers wide receivers is probably going to have a bad game because the other two are going to have a perceivably good game. Same with the Steelers wide receivers. And then you got the old dudes like Thielen, Julio, OBJ, Lockett. You know, a manager may have paid up for him in the offseason. They lay an egg week one. That's when I'm slipping into the DMs. Okay. So what, from what I understand here, it's like you're essentially premeditating trades for guys that have hype but ostensibly could fall flat in the first couple of weeks. And and I think it's really interesting that you highlighted Jonathan Taylor and A.J. Brown because of how they're super high in Dynasty, but in redraft we have tempered expectations because of their situation and, and because of a couple of different things. So you're trying to essentially be reactive by taking advantage of managers that are potentially being reactionary. Correct. Right? Correct. Yeah, no, I see it as like you're looking for that week one discount. Like these are certified guys that you believe in and you would have banked a lot of uh, value into them you know, during the offseason. And if they go out and they stumble week one for whatever reason, you know, for all of the reasons why they're lower in redraft than Dynasty, then you just want to position yourself to kind of capitalize on that. So I think it's a sound decision. Um, you know, I mean, we definitely adjust to like the new data as it comes up, but I think you can also take advantage of people who are being reactionary instead. And the main thing I took away there, the thing that Mitch said that resonated the most with me was even if they aren't being re reactionary, just putting the offer out there, uh, letting them know that you're interested, like if the trend continues, so maybe week right. one doesn't do anything to them, but if the trend continues, they're like, oh man, I'm not digging this. Maybe they, they think about you more like, okay. They know you're the guy to call. They exactly. know, hey, right. yeah. 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 I like that. And I then like you're that. first in line when the actual mm -hmm. time to trade does come. One thing that I kind of extracted from Mitch's piece is that right now, you know, before kickoff, make a list of players and what you would pay for them. Don't waver on that price over the first couple of weeks because you may not waver on that price, but the person that you're trying to get the player from very well could, right? If they're being a little bit reactionary and they and they kind of freak out a little bit. Right. And well, that player is affecting their scoreboard, not yours. So right, it's right. just sitting there. And if you if you want to take it off their hands, man, for somebody that is putting it on this year, but maybe not in the future, those two guys are just keep them in your sights. All right, so I am going to talk about something I will be reacting to in week one. I'm going to be reacting to my contending roster's ability to contend. And here's what I mean. In redraft, losing is stressful. I hate losing in redraft fantasy football leagues. Every loss feels like a punch in the gut, like you're, you're far away from the playoffs. You're never going to recover. In Dynasty... I actually think winning is stressful. This guy. <laughs> if you're losing as a rebuilder, especially in Dynasty, all you have is time. You're just worrying about value accrual and patience is actually a virtue in Dynasty when you're rebuilding. When you're a contender, the squeeze is on because if you don't reach the apex, if you don't win your league, you probably lost some value on the climb up the mountain. Because it's so much easier to allocate resources efficiently in a rebuild because you aren't worried about week-to-week -week points like you are as a contender. So what does this mean? I've said it. Trey has said it numerous times on this show. If I'm not a dominant force in my league who has positional advantages at nearly every spot in my lineup, I'm usually kicking the can a bit or at least hedging my roster to where... 
yeah, it can remain competitive, but I might offload a point or two per game in the lineup if it means getting several years younger at a roster spot. So, you know, maybe I'll trade Keenan Allen down to Deontay Johnson in, in a third or Nick Chubb to Javante Williams in a second, right? We will talk about strategies for pivoting in a few weeks here on the show, you know, pivoting from rebuilder to contender and vice versa. But I want to prime that conversation by saying, try to diagnose rather quickly whether you're contending or you're pretending, because if you're pretending and you're late to realize it, your sharper league mates are going to soak up all the rebuilding assets and you're going to get squeezed into the middle. So, so Tarek, what would you need to see out of your contending roster in the first week or two to make you think, oh shit, this is uh, actually not a contender? I mean, obviously injuries are going to be one thing, right? So, you know, if, if one or two of your studs gets injured, like Stefan Diggs or, you know, Nick Chubb or something like that, don't necessarily go trade that player for a lesser player just because you want to make up points in your lineup, right? Um, maybe instead you should kind of bite the bullet and kick the can and allocate resources efficiently to where you can build something even better in 2022 and 2023. Um, because I mean, it's a little bit controversial, like what I said about um, I want to be a dominant force in my league, not just contending. Um, I've had a couple of conversations on Twitter about this recently um, because a lot of people are like, you know, if 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 you're just constantly rebuilding, then, you know, you're not really playing the game. You're just like kicking the can all the time. And no, I think it. that's why we call it dynasty, right? Because we want to mm -hmm. build a dynasty. We want to build a force and. For me, if you don't kind of have a dominant contender right off the bat, if you're not like contending from the beginning of the league, then it's a lot easier to build that dominant force if you just kick it down one year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so my kind of view on that is as long as you're in the top, you know, four or five in a 12 man dynasty league, then you're probably a good enough contender, even if you don't have an overwhelming positional advantage at every single spot in your roster. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, as somebody who went through this last year in our one quarterback league, uh, when I had uh, Michael Thomas and Nick Chubb on that team and I was going into the year as a contender and then they both went down and it was very obvious I didn't have a contender anymore and I had to adjust accordingly. So um, I probably waited a little bit too long to react. And I think it's a good point to get people thinking about that now before the season starts and what they need to look out for. You mentioned injuries that I think like if you start 0 and 4, 1 and 3, then it's more than likely it's time. It's 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 you got to you got to start. So it might be not be a week one thing, uh, but you got to be honest with yourself after at least six weeks. Right. You, you got to you're going to have to decide, make that decision and uh, kick the can to next year, as you say. For sure. I think week one, basically the thing you're looking out for most is a major injury that's going to last for the rest of the year. Like a poor performance is something that we're just going to be like, eh, right. on to the next week. I mean, there there could be a situation in which Urban Meyer really loves Carlos Hyde, right? And just gives Carlos Hyde, you know, 70% of the work and James Robinson is, is relegated to some kind of backup role. Right. And if you're, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen, but if you were relying on James Robinson as being like your flex play on your contending roster, that, that could be problematic. Right. And, and I like what John said here. Like if you're starting one and three or zero oh and four in a redraft league, 
you can make moves to get yourself out of that hole. But the problem is, if you do that in a dynasty league, make moves to get yourself out of an 0-4 hole, and you don't reach that championship, you probably lost a lot of value yeah. in the process. Yeah. That's what I'm, that's that's kind of the big things I'm saying. I mean, we're talking about week one here, so we need to be measured. But this is your first data input on whether or not like the team that you think is a real, you know, dominant contender. Maybe maybe it won't turn out that way. And you just have to kind of be limber. OK, Trey, what is something you will be reacting to in week one? So I'm going to react to the snaps and the target splits in all of the ambiguous situations out there. So there's a couple of ambiguous backfields that I think everybody needs to be tracking in week one. So looking at uh, Tampa, we've got Ronald Jones, we've got Leonard Fournette, and now we've got Giovanni Bernard, who's going to mix in somewhere. We all expect that's going to be some type of committee. And I really want to know who's going to lead the way in terms of snaps and opportunities. Because uh, that's going to make me adjust the the value across the board there. So a couple other situations, uh, New York Jets uh, between Coleman, Carter, and Ty Johnson, uh, the LA Rams uh, between Henderson and Sonny Michelle, and then to a lesser degree, San Francisco and Denver. And the reason I say to a lesser degree is because I think that Trey Sermon and Javante Williams won't get a lot of tread to start the year in those offenses, but I do think that um, if they came out really, really strong in week one, then that would make me raise my dynasty value on those guys. But more important than the uh, the backfields, I think, are the ambiguous receiver room. So I want to know who's going to lead the team in targets in Denver between Sutton and Judy. I want to know how the target share breaks out in Carolina with DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson, and then to a lesser degree, Terrace Marshall, because he played so well in the preseason. I'm looking at Jacksonville with Chenault, Chark, and Jones. Looking at Pittsburgh with Claypool, Johnson, and Juju. And then even New England, right? So Jacoby Myers, Nelson Aguilar, and those tight ends, right? So for each of these situations, I would consider moving a guy up or down if they had significantly more targets than their teammates. First, you want to check why, right? Was this guy just starting against a corner who, or a backup corner, and he was just picking on him all day, and, and he just had a crazy day? Or, you know, maybe he was just, uh, maybe he's just that good and he was commanding that target share because, you know, he is the dominant force in that room. We didn't see it until it came out on the field. So consider adjusting your ranks based on these splits and these ambiguous situations. So I want these splits and targets to confirm my priors. And if they don't, then I really want to react and reevaluate re my ranks accordingly. And I guess the only caveat here is I wouldn't say to overreact, but you do want to act quickly enough so you can get that slight advantage and value over your uh, league mates and potential trades. Yeah, trade one one thing um, that I kind of want to highlight from this that I think will be really important is not only like target share um, and you mentioned it, but also like routes and snap share and like what percentage of the snaps um, these kind of ambiguous receivers are in on the field. And even if they're not in on 90% of the routes, right? what what is their target rate in terms of the routes that they're running right so kind of the stat on when they're on the field how often are they commanding targets i think those kinds of kind of deeper um share percentages can give us a little bit more insight into how the team is valuing the receiver and how they want to deploy the receiver and how much talent the receiver is putting out in the world when he's running routes on the field 
Yeah, that that pretty much gives you the coach's tipped hand right there, because if they're in on a limited snap count, but they're receiving a high percentage of touches or whatever, that means they're in there on a design play for them. So those are definitely green flags. If I'm seeing that, I am a happy camper. One of the things we really like about Chase Claypool, I think, is that while he was kind of a part time player last year, his targets per route run was extremely high. So when he got on the field, Big Ben was looking for him. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to uh, really bring this up is because I built all these projections in the offseason based on projected uh, carries, splits, and target share split, you know, for each of these different teams. So it's important to kind of see did these projections shake out the way I thought they would? And if it's significantly different than what I thought, then I want to ask myself why. And then consider if it's time to adjust and move a guy mm-hmm. up or down my ranks accordingly. So that's really what I'm looking for because there's a lot of these ambiguous situations out there. And week one will be our first chance to figure out who's really the lead guy in the room. When you do the exercise of doing projections, I think that's the kind of insight it gives you. Um, and that's the kind of insight that I think that you will be able to share with our listeners in terms of like, okay, I made my ranks, you know, partially based on this projection, but this is how I'm tweaking them because I'm paying attention to these things week by week. Right. Okay. Mic check for it is halftime. Nas, why did you do it? You know you got the mad fat fluid when you rhyme. It's halftime. All right. We are changing up halftime a little bit in season, guys. Instead of kind of changing the question week by week, we are going to start doing picks against the spread. So we're all going to pick a game against the spread and explain why we like it. And just to put a little bit of skin in the game, I actually, in the state of Illinois, am allowed to gamble on sports. So I am going to parlay 20 bucks on our picks every week, and we'll see how many we can hit in the next 18 weeks. So game on. I mean, Hitting, you know, a four game parlay against the spread is not easy, but we're going to put our heads together and see if we can do it. I mean, we're also not telling each other what games we're picking, so we may pick the same games on some week and thus, you know, it'll be a little bit less of a payoff. But, you know, we just want to have skin in the game for what we're talking about with these halftime picks. All right, guys. So everyone's going to pick a game against the spread. Let's start with Mitch. All right. Let's go Panthers. Let's go Panthers. Uh, friendly reminder, uh, the Jets still suck. Um, I do think that they're going to finish poorly this year, and I think they're going to lose game one. But for one particular reason, and uh, that's that's my guy Sammy D, uh, old whack Arnold, or old whack Darnold, I believe. I, I don't remember what I called him. Mitch, what's the spread on that game? The spread is uh, minus five. So we got the Panthers minus five over the Jets. And here's why. I think Sam Darnold gets it done, and uh, he's never gotten it done for the Jets in the past, so he's not going to do it for him this time, and uh, let's go Panthers. Okay, so you're, you're, you're taking that revenge game narrative oh, in full I'm swing. eating it up. I'm going to watch DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson and Christian McCaffrey come back to life against that porous Jets D. Give it to me. All right, yeah, I, I can definitely see the Panthers winning by more than five at home against the New York Jets and that rookie quarterback. All right, Trey, who's your pick? All right, well, I'm also going to fade another rookie quarterback here, and I'll take Miami as a plus three underdog on the road in New England. So think back to last year. Miami was a 10 and six team, and New England was seven and nine. And right now, New England is a three point favorite against Miami at home. So um, I do think Miami is a better team than they were last year through the pieces they added 
in that receiver room and the pieces they added on defense through the draft. I think New England is probably slightly better with Mac Jones as a starter. Uh, but, you know, I'm counting on Tua to take a step forward as a second-year player. I'm counting on that Miami offense to be good enough against a pretty good Pats defense. And I'm just counting on Mac Jones to have some rookie struggles in his first game against a live pro defense. And then I also get all that narrative around uh, you know, Flores versus Belichick and the divisional rivalry and all that good stuff. So I think this will be close. And if I was betting a pick I think I would take the Dolphins to win outright. So I'm happy to take them as a three-point underdog. Okay, I am actually going to go third here. And I'm kind of, I was kind of between two games, but I think I'm going to go against uh, the narrative that I spun in the coin toss a couple weeks ago. And I'm actually going to choose the Cowboys plus eight and a half against the Buccaneers tomorrow. Because remember, when we talked a couple weeks ago, the line opened at negative seven and a half for the Bucs. So it's actually moved another point there. Um, with the Zach Martin injury, I think is probably what pushed it over the edge. And you know what? I, you know, I, the, the Cowboys defense is bad and the Bucks are the Super Bowl champions. They're a great team, but eight and a half is a big spread, uh, for a team with as explosive of an offense as Dallas. Um, so I feel pretty good getting eight and a half points to choose Dallas there. How about them Cowboys? John, what Ooh. you got? All right. Uh, so we've got the Broncos are minus three against the Giants. And I, I'm I got to take the snow donkeys here. And this is more about nice. Uh, the, this is more <laughs> about this is more about the Giants than uh, the Broncos. I think the Giants are going to be a, a bottom five team this year. Uh, this is the first time Saquon's come back. We don't know how healthy he is uh, the offensive line. We've got a lot of questions about how good they're going to be this year. And I think that the uh, Teddy Bridgewater is good enough to get it done against bad teams. I'm not sure they're going to be good enough to get it done against good teams. So I expect the Broncos to handle the Giants pretty well this this game. And uh, let's go snow donkeys. I like it. All right. Trey, your bet scares me, though. <laughs> Man, I got the Pats by like 10 on that one. I'm glad that we're doing this because I would never do that. But I hope you're right. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, Panthers, Dolphins, Snow donkeys, cowboys. I will I will put in the parlay at some point this weekend. I like it. Before tomorrow night. All right, let's kick off this second half, and we're flipping the script. So in the first half, like we said, we talked about things that we will be reacting to in week one. This second half, arguably more important, right? Things we will not be reacting to after week one because you want to be reactive, you don't want to be reactionary. So these are some reactionary things that we want to stay away from. All right, John, we're going to you first. I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit here, and I will absolutely not be reacting to rookie running back stat lines after week one. It inevitably takes almost every rookie running back about half the season to get warmed up and get going. If anything, I'm hoping that someone is reacting to this inevitability so that a window opens up for me to try and get some of these rookie running backs on my roster that I wasn't able to get through the draft. So let me just give you a few examples from just last year. So recent. First, I'll give you three. One, Jonathan Taylor. Week 10, seven attempts, 12 yards. Hadn't been real great before then. A lot of people are talking him down like, how did you take this guy one or two in your uh, rookie draft. And then he we, was Trent Richardson at the time. Yes, yeah. exactly. Ooh, yeah, there was some crazy hate. He couldn't he couldn't find a hole. He couldn't make a cut. Nothing. Then week 11 hits and he exploded. Never look back. 
Second example, J.K. Dobbins, rest in peace, was barely being used, barely at all being used in the Ravens' backfield, and then exploded week eight. Same thing with Antonio Gibson. Wasn't used much, then exploded against <clears throat> Dallas in week seven, and then again on th- <laughs> against Dallas on Thanksgiving. So the point is, it's going to take some time with these rookie running backs. 95% chance that's true. We can look back in time and look at some other pretty significant examples. I'm not going to waste time on that. I'll just say... It's going to take them some time to acclimate to a new offense and, more importantly, NFL defenses. So I'm not going to panic if Pookie and Najee aren't running back ones in week one. All right, John, I'm going to waste time on that because I, <laughs> I think it is actually a good exercise to look back even further, right? Sure. And you can look at the players at the top of the running back boards right now. You know, Christian McCaffrey had kind of a slow start splitting time with Jonathan Stewart. Nick Chubb, another slow start until Carlos Hyde got traded. Camara a slow start until Adrian Peterson left the Saints. You know, basically we we've seen Derek guys Henry. like Ezekiel Elliott and yeah, Derek. He had like a three year slow start. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, so look, we see guys like Ezekiel Elliott and Saquon Barkley, and they come out and they're their best selves right away. And I think you know it's reasonable to expect that rookie running backs are going to produce in their rookie year. But I think those kinds of um, kind of rookie production has kind of skewed our perception of how most backfields operate in the modern NFL. So yeah, be patient, right? I, I completely agree with this. And also like, don't worry about rookie receiver stat lines. Like we need to be real about the thresholds that we expect for rookies receivers not just to hold value but increase value so like think about 800 to 850 yards as a baseline and we go gaga over those receivers in the offseason between their rookie and sophomore seasons think about dk metcalf aj brown brandon Ayuk, chase claypool even debo samuel after his rookie year saw a massive value bump so in week one week two we're gonna be in points on the board season so don't lose sight of how young players, rookies specifically, accrue value at both the receiver and running back position. The baseline that they need by the end of the season is actually pretty modest. Yeah, and I actually took this out of my segment because it was more in John's here. Um, I was going to mention that I'm also going to be in the DMs and the trade inboxes for the slow starting rookies because, again, people have spent generally a lot on these assets like a jamar chase if he has a slow start or uh i I mean any of these guys really like i want them to know that i'm ready to buy them in that slow start and if i have them then i'm not of course willing to sell them in that moment i'm giving them time because that's what it takes that's what it usually takes and uh we've like Tarek mentioned we've witnessed some some crazy stuff where people are just coming out the gates crushing it but that's that's not normal it's not yeah well and Still, though, let's, I guess, draw the line between buying somebody low after like the first four or five weeks versus buying low after a first full season, because then that gets into uh, face planner uh, territory. And mm-hmm. right, 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 right. So as followers of DF being kind of around here, we don't we don't go and trade for face planners. Right, guys? No, we don't. I mean, <laughs> I I mean, I like Michael Pittman, but, you know, that that's a conversation for another time. But but I mean. The the point is, if you think about the general fantasy landscape, especially with like receivers, the baseline of production that they need in order to be expected to be like a second and third year breakout is actually pretty modest. Yeah. You know, we want 
800, 850 yards. We want a couple of touchdowns and we want them to show that they have something. And then everybody's going to want them after their rookie year, right? So I, I think this lines up with what John is saying really well. If you're managing one of these rookies, you cannot panic sell. Like, for instance, I'll give an example. This is something that didn't go down, but John can attest that it almost did. In A.J. Brown's rookie season, after the first couple of weeks, I almost traded John A.J. Brown for Matt Breida. Because back then, Matt Breida was the top running back in Kyle Shanahan's offense. And A.J. Brown, you know, he hadn't really shown who he was. He had Marcus Barriotto slinging him that rock. I know. Look, it didn't (laughs) go through. But what I'm saying is those types of things happen all the time. So I'm just putting myself out there. Yeah, I was on on the ledge. I had forgotten about that. And now I'm sad again. Thank you. (laughs) I remember John's. I remember John very, very quickly saying, yes, I would do that. (laughs) that." (laughs) You were too quick to say yes, man. He should have played it cool. Yeah, questioned himself immediately. You got to play it cool. It's like, you know, don't call him until three days after the first date, right? You got to play it cool. Maybe if you added a third round pick that I could do it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, do it. That is a great insight, John. And yeah, don't tilt for uh, Matt Breida, <laughs> Mike Davis, uh, like uh, or <laughs> Miles Gaskin, like uh, like Angry T does. Hey, I like Miles Gaskin. Leave him alone. Man, I wish Miles Gaskin was as good as Matt Breida was. <laughs> is hey, that man. controversial? Anyway, moving on. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, all right, Mitch, why don't you take us to your thing that you are not reacting to? Uh, well, I am reacting to shit. Because it's week one. Let's let's get that straight here. Uh, let the needle cannot move very far in either direction. Okay, so dismiss the first half, guys. Yeah. Don't even pay yeah. attention to the fuck first all, half. Fuck all of that. No, I'm saying don't overreact. Um, your needle should be where you know it, it's not going to move a whole lot, but yeah, it's going to start moving in one direction or the other, definitely. But this is not like a oh my god. Uh, let's take a victory lap. The guy I've been saying all all off season just crushed it week one. I was right. Uh, this is no like we need a little bit more time than that. And so uh, what I mean by that is we're not going to go out and buy these guys right away after they confirmed our beliefs. So uh, like Callaway would be a good example that I got here where like uh, we're expecting him to step into that wide receiver one role in. Uh, New Orleans here, say he goes out and gets 100 yards and a touchdown, and we're like, all right, well, people have been saying that uh, he's the guy on Twitter, and you know what? I, I'm starting to believe him. He he did it. I'm going to go out and pay wide receiver one money for him. I'm saying don't do that. Please don't do that. But uh, this kind of also goes with me, right? Like I've been saying, Jonu Smith, he's my guy. If he explodes week one, yeah, I'm going to be happy, but I'm going to be quiet about that. I'm not going to be like, oh, he has arrived. He's tight end. He's a tight end one now. But at the same time, I'm also looking at players that you're on the fence about. Uh, Tua would be a good example as well. So Tua, I'm on the fence about. Uh, I haven't really loved him, but I see this first game as a good opportunity for him where his O-line's unhealthy, not really there. The, the Patriots D is coming back. And Bill Belichick, uh, I, I think he's got Tua's number here. So if Tua comes out and balls, that's going to alleviate some of my concerns. But I'm not going to say go out and trade your uh, first or two firsts for him and a player. Don't don't do that either. I think we need some more time. Um, 
especially with a guy like Tua or Hertz, because we all know that uh, they've been low key searching for another quarterback to potentially replace them. So just saying, you know, temper, temper every reaction you got here. Uh, don't panic move if your guy that you've been banking on uh, didn't really do well. But don't take a victory lap and be like, I, I'm, I'm winning this league, like with this guy right here. Or if uh, you see Sammy Watkins put up a ton of points week one, don't go buy him either. Just, just chill. Yeah, Mitch, I kind of see this as sort of a corollary to what you were telling us in the first half, which is essentially if you've got a guy that you really like and he's got like a down week or whatever, then don't like totally you know, devalue him, like take advantage of that temporary dip and go out and trade for him. And this is you also saying like, just because they have a down week or two, it's not the end of the world or a big up week. You know, it doesn't mean they're like they have arrived. Right. So I think from a value perspective, it, it makes sense not to overreact to just one game. Let's like see it happen over three or four weeks before we really move guys up and down our ranks. Right. And I just see a lot of dangerous confirmation bias here. Tarek, I mean, can I jump in and just do mine? Because mine's actually kind of like fairly related to this. Because what I what I was going to go ahead and suggest was um, I'm not going to react to outlier touchdown performances. And I think it's guys who have like big weeks in touchdowns tend to get like into this sort of hype train that Mitch is talking about, you know. And uh, for me, I look as at touchdowns as an outcome of opportunities, right? So guys who get a lot of volume in the middle of the field, guys who get a lot of volume in the red zone, that's what generates touchdowns. And unless, um, you know, we believe like a guy should be winning in the end zone for whatever reason, like maybe he's a Calvin Johnson type receiver who's just way better than any quarterback he faces up against, then I'm not going to like go out and, you know, sell the farm for a DeMarcus, a DeMarcus Robinson type who, you know, two years ago blew up for 170 yards and two touchdowns and then we never heard from him again. So, so basically every single week of the year, there's going to be these backup running backs, these backup receivers and tight ends who get a line for like two catches and two touchdowns or two carries and two touchdowns. And unless they're really getting that volume to make me think that that's going to be sustainable production, then I'm not going to overreact to that in my valuations. So there's a couple other guys that kind of come to mind here and I'm just cherry picking dudes, but uh, last year, there was Sammy Watkins in week one. Uh, he had seven catches, 82 yards, and a touchdown. We never heard from him again. And most of us probably thought he was washed before the season started, right? So there's probably a lot of people kind of jumping on that and overreacting when we saw that. And then, you know, look what happened. And then Latavius Murray, week four last year, he had 14 carries for 60 yards, well, two touchdowns, and another catch for 19 yards. So you know, a lot of us were probably thinking, oh, wow, you know, now I've got this like nice little flex piece. And that was really all he gave us. So look, if somebody's got a crazy outlier week, pay attention, but don't overreact. If this volume doesn't suggest it's going to turn into something long term. And what might be even more important is to have a longer look at their teammates who might be higher, like more valuable guys to understand if potentially they're losing some volume or some opportunity especially in the red zone. And then you might want to adjust accordingly, but it's those outlier touchdown performances. I'm not going to overreact to. Yeah. Uh, you know, I kind of want to like skate back a little bit to something that Mitch said, um, which is essentially about not taking victory laps too early. Right. You know, we all love to take victory laps, right? 
Um, and Mitch brought it up specifically in relation to Marquez Calloway, I believe. And if you if Marquez Calloway comes out and has a big week one, you know, the people who invested in Marquez Calloway are going to be really excited about that. But the flip side to it is that if they victory lap, they're going to think that their work is done, right? They're going to think that they can just ride Marquez Calloway yes, exactly. in their wide receiver two spot for 16 weeks. And that is stupid. Like, don't do that. Use that as an opportunity to gain value and get pieces on your roster that we know are studs, right? right? Even if Marquez Calloway has a big week in week one, that's exciting. That's another opportunity to make a profit on Marquez Calloway. So, right? so Tarek, here's here's my thing then. Like, say Marquez Calloway goes out there, he gets four catches on four targets for 100 yards and two touchdowns. That doesn't look as good to me as like, nine catches on 11 targets and like no yeah. touchdowns, you know, like one of those tells me that this is a guy who's going to be a significant piece of the offense. The other one tells me it was just kind of a blip on the radar and I can cash out and take the value jump. So sometimes this happens with the waiver wire guys, right? Like Travis Fulgham for the Eagles last year, I think for three weeks, he was like, he was in wide receiver one territory for three straight weeks. And everybody's like, oh my God, this guy's the truth. And what's just happened to him? He's really? cut now. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. don't don't be yeah. afraid to cash out, as Trey says. Um, cash take, out immediately. If you man, I forgot about Travis Fulgham. He was that is, he was the truth for three weeks. There was a lot of people saying he wasn't that bad over the offense, but I mean, look at what they the Eagles did. They you know drafted a receiver in the first round, and turns out they didn't need him anymore. Yeah, Trey and I are both saying the same thing. We're saying don't be the guy that is reacting late. Like if you went and got Callaway early like in the off season, you didn't pay a whole lot for him. That's cool. We're not saying that's a bad move. We're saying like, yeah, cash out when his value hits that all time high. Don't be the, don't be the dude going and getting it late. You're, you're always going to pay more and that your team's going to be right. bad. Yeah. Like if you were Trey, who is the guy on Twitter that had the Marquez Callaway hype train like all summer? Was oh, that... it's uh, Jacob Sanderson. Yeah, man. If you were that guy and you had Marquez Callaway on like a hundred percent of your teams in July, then well done, nice. you know, but cash out. <laughs> well, I love, I love following that dude on Twitter. And, and, and so I had Callaway on three different teams and I'm hanging on to him one and one just because I do want to see how high this, uh, this rocket ship goes. Absolutely. All right, guys, I'm going to close this out then, uh, with what I am not reacting to. And it's kind of a blanket statement. I will not react to crutch arguments. And this honestly is more of a reminder to myself than it is to anyone else because all of us are victim to the crutch argument. I am a victim of the crutch. The crutch is just so comfortable, you know? It makes it so much easier to walk miles and our flimsy takes. So I'm going to give you some examples of crutch arguments. And in order to really highlight how I feel about them, I'm going to do it in TikTok famous person Kyle Gordon's uh, no fun kid voice. All right. So here are some crutch arguments. Mother, they're going to be down a bunch, so they will need to throw a lot. <laughs> Gweg, well, you know, running quarterbacks don't check down to their running backs. Larry, it's it's just such a bad offense. Mother, that coach only uses a running back by committee. There's no one else there to catch passes. Tywell Williams must be the guy. Haven't you ever heard of vacated targets? Mother, 
there's clearly too many mouths to feed in the San Francisco offense. Um, it's Ben Waflesberger. Don't you know he's always better at home? <clears throat> he's just been so much better on the road than at home this year. Crutch arguments. We've spent the last few weeks talking about training camp noise, preseason noise, etc. But this, these crutch arguments are the kind of on-season noise that's going to intensify in the first few weeks. And we really want to kind of wade through them. Because what these crutch arguments do, and, you know, Chris Harris on his podcast, the Harris Football Podcast, just ruthless when it comes to crutch arguments, and I love it. But what they do is they distract us from our player evaluations that, in the long run, should lead us to target good players and expect that doing so will carry us to success. Crutch arguments are bad in redraft, but in Dynasty, they're poison. Because in Dynasty, we're playing the long game, right? You don't want to let these narratives cloud your judgment. So they are poison in Dynasty. And honestly, from this conversation, I think every time on the long game podcast, I hear a crutch argument, I'm just going to scream crutch on the show. Every time one of these comes out, and I hope I hope that y'all do the same for me. In, in Kyle Gordon's voice, too. Yeah. Quutch. Just scream it. <laughs> Quutch. I'm sick of them, man. I'm sick of these crutch arguments. Look, like Tyrell Williams had a 21% target share like five years ago, man. So he's just coming back to the guy that we, we all know he is. You're living in the past. Haven't you ever heard of vacated <laughs> targets? Tarek will read it in his voice, but when I ask him last episode to read it in Trey's voice from Boston, he won't do it. I love it. Where's your Boston accent, bro? <laughs> listen, man. Listen, man. I, I had to prepare the Kyle Gordon voice. I, I didn't prepare no, well a done. Boston well done. accent. Well done. And this is, this is the best reward we have ever given our listeners for listening to the entire episode. So thank you for that wonderful performance. I, I can't unhear it. Thank you so yeah, much. We'll, we'll have to link like five Kyle Gordon uh, TikToks to our uh, our Twitter feed this week. Absolutely. I'm definitely tagging Kyle Gordon this week on Twitter. I'm, <laughs> Maybe I'm, you guys will be friends. He's a Chicago guy, right? There you go. All right. That is going to do it for episode 22 of the Long Game Dynasty podcast. Remember, guys, be reactive. Don't be reactionary. You got to strike that balance. We will see you next week. Enjoy your football. Enjoy it later. Week one. Let's go. Go Titans, baby.